Psalm 27. And I'm going to read the whole thing. And it would be really good if you had a Bible or your phone or something that you can keep an eye on it as we, as we go along. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be lifted, will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his sacred tent. That's the tabernacle. I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Father, bless your people. With your word, your spirit, come and move in this place and just awaken our souls in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that strikes all Christians, as we get familiar with the Psalms, is their refusal to deny the reality of difficult circumstances around us. And we won't get far in life if we refuse to acknowledge the reality of the pain, the hurt, the difficulties, the evil, the things that cannot be avoided as we journey through this life. David uses some comprehensive terms in this psalm for human troubles. He talks about the wicked advancing against him to devour him. An army besieging him, war breaking out against him. In fact, you see the whole range of human suffering. You see on one hand, you can picture David standing, looking and seeing a crowd of people rushing towards him to attack him in in verse 2. And in verse 10... You see the opposite at the bottom of the the screen there in verse 10. You see him standing, watching people 
running away from him and abandoning him. So he's got the whole range of those coming to attack and those who abandon him, who forsake him and leave him. He's also got those in verse 12 who rise up and bring false witness against him. And he sums it all up in verse 5 and talks about the day of trouble. According to one blogger and pastor and church planter, a guy called Daryl Dash, the Psalms give us permission to stop pretending that everything is okay. They are raw and they are real and they are honest and they do not airbrush over life's troubles. But although David puts this psalm in the context of trouble and challenge and difficulty and attack and abandonment and lots of things, he doesn't start there. He starts with God. In verse 1, he starts by saying what the Lord is. The Lord is light, the Lord is salvation, and the Lord is stronghold. So David's not going to deny the troubles around him, but he's going to begin by getting his gaze fixed on God. On God. This is what Paul says in in Colossians 3, where he talks about setting your affections on things above. Get the right perspective. Get your gaze fixed, focused on God. One of the things that I learned very quickly because I got very cold and very wet the first time I went paddleboarding is if you look down, that's where you're going. (laughs) You get your eyes fixed on something out in front of you in order to get yourself up and get steady. You got to fix your eyes on God. And that's what David does at the outset of the psalm. He says that the Lord is light because in this world there is much darkness and we need light to navigate it. The Lord is salvation. And the word salvation, one of those Bible words that that sometimes you can lose the meaning of, it simply means setting people free from what imprisons them, saving them from what enslaves. And he is our salvation. He is the one who sets us free. And he is our stronghold. Whenever we are vulnerable, whenever those enemies are advancing against us and we have no shelter and we have no cover and we suddenly realize we need to get to a place of safety, he is the stronghold that we run to. And it's not that God has these things. It's not that God has light and we go to God and we get a wee bit of light and then we go off again. Or that God has salvation or has a stronghold. No, David says the Lord is is these things. He is light. I don't need light. I need God. (laughs) I don't need salvation. I need God. I don't need a stronghold. I need God because he is all of those things. And to see him as a dispenser of those things is wrong. We must see him as being our light our salvation and our stronghold. And I love the way David puts this. I've left out a word intentionally there. The Lord is light, salvation, stronghold. What David actually says is the Lord is my light. Not my daddy's light or my mum's light or my granny's light or my mate's light or my church's light. Mine. (laughs) He's my light. He is my salvation. Not, he's not, yes, he's the saviour of all who come to him, but he's mine. 
you know, David has laid hold on him personally. And if we're going to navigate the darkness of this world and the things that surround us and try to imprison us and the things that surround us and try to attack us, we must have a personal walk with God, a personal knowledge of him. I love Thomas at the end of John's gospel where he hasn't been so sure after the resurrection and then he sees Jesus and he doesn't say our Lord and our God. He says, my Lord and my God. Grasp hold of God with two hands and greedily make him yours. He is personal. And the psalm talks a lot about fear. Three times actually in those first three verses. Of whom shall I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? My heart will not fear. And one of the results at the start of the psalm. One of the results of getting your eyes fixed. And your focus fixed on God. Is that fear will be dispelled. Fear will be driven away. Now, what are you afraid of? You know, what are you afraid of? And some, you you might say, I'm not really afraid of anything. I've been really challenged lately, probably over the past couple of years, and and I've pondered it much over the past six months because I've been doing a a course, a biblical counseling course uh, from the ministry of a guy called David Paulison. And he has talked a lot. He's talked a lot about two things, two things that are, that are at the root of so much. One of them is pride. And the other one is the fear of man. The fear of man. Now, the fear of man is not the fear that some big dude is going to come up and slap you and, and leave you feeling hurt or sore or whatever. You know, that, that is, we're not talking about physical fear of man. The fear of man is... Whenever what others think of me start to become the driving force in my life and in my decision making. If I was to rank my personal issues, which you really don't want me to do right now. (laughs) But that's going to be high up as something that I have battled with. And we all battle. We fight our various different battles in the Christian life at different stages. That's one that I have battled with. The fear of man. Fear of man is to orient my life instead of around God, my light, my salvation and my stronghold. I start to orient my life around another person. What they will think. How they will respond. And the fear of man causes the views of other people to become way too important. Now, that's not to say that we become ignorant lone rangers and we reject the views of other people and the opinions of them. No way. But when we find ourselves starting to second guess and to check everything we're doing because we're worried about how some person might respond, then we're struggling with the fear of man. And according to Proverbs, fear of man will prove to be a snare. It will catch you out. It will trip you up. So if you're sitting thinking as we read this psalm or as we talk any time about fear and think, I'm not really afraid of anything, Check your heart because deep down there can be these these fears that are driving you and you don't even realize it. It's subconscious. 
There are three threats at the start of the psalm. The wicked advance, the army besieges, the war breaks out. There are three characteristics of God. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. And then there are three declarations against fear. (laughs) So as, as things, as threatening things come in and oppose us for every enemy that opposes us and comes against us, every fear, every mindset, every thought, every demon, whatever it may be, for everything that comes against us, the key to overcoming it is to get your gaze fixed on the character of God. (laughs) Not to just come to God and say, I'm having this particular problem with this particular demon, and if you give me a particular verse that I can quote, we're done. No. Go to God. (laughs) To get God. Go and meditate on his character. That is the key to overcoming fear in your life and the result of it is at the end of verse 3 I will be confident when you read that word in your bible or your your version might say it's to do with I will place my trust in confidence is a placing of trust and after I meditate on the character of God and my fears are dispelled I am placing my trust in him and my confidence in him What is the one thing in life that you need? One thing. I'm going to keep going before Ashley starts answering. Um, One thing in life. You need a holiday. You don't. You've had two. All right? Do you need a holiday? Do 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 you need a break? Do you need a pay raise? Do you need interest rates to come down? Do you need interest rates to go up? (laughs) You're rare if you do. Uh, Do you need some peace and quiet? Do you need an answer to a question that's just burning in your heart? Maybe the question is just a two-word question. God, why? What are the things, what, what is it that you, you just sometimes, you know what I mean, where you, where you get yourself in, in certain stages of life for whatever reason, you say, if I just had that, if that issue was just resolved, if I just got that thing, if I just had a bit of peace, if I just had more time to myself, if I just had one thing, these, these, these things that we long for. And do you know what? Sometimes, you, you may not agree with me, but you might, sometimes you, you actually get it. <laughs> and about three days later, you're like, yeah, nothing's changed. <laughs> I've, I've pined for this. I've wanted this. And, and now I've got it. And I'm still the same idiot that, that I was before. If David was offered one thing in the circumstances that he was in, he might have selected an army. <laughs> because I've got an army coming against me and therefore I need an army to protect me and to, to come against them. He might have chosen, because he was being abandoned uh, by, by family, or he, or he suggests that in verse 10, he might have said, I, I could do with more faithful people to stand with me because some people are, are abandoning me and leaving me. And in verse 12, uh, he maybe wants somebody to come and stand up for him because others are bearing false witness. And he maybe wants vindication. He wants that a lot in the Psalms. He maybe wants someone to come and tell the truth publicly. No, this is what David's actually like. He's not a bad spot. What is the one thing in in the midst of all of these circumstances that that he's described, what is the one thing 
that he wants. And it's not weapons or an army or more friends or people to defend his reputation. The one thing he wants is God. That's it. And I tell you, and I don't mean to belittle what what you may be going through or have gone through or might be about to go through, but I can tell you no matter what it is, the one thing you need is God. That is the one thing you need. And there are secondary and tertiary and ongoing other things that might help, but the one thing is God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. He is the one thing in every circumstance of life that you and I need and should be longing for and craving. David just wants God. And I say the word just lightly. (laughs) He just wants God. Everything swarming and swirling around him. And he stands and says, Father, I just want you. I just, I don't want what you can give me. I don't want just everything fixed. Just you. Do you feel that in your Christian life, in your walk with God? Do you feel that? I just want God. There's lots of other things that would be good, but I just want... Why why do I pray? Because I want God. Why do I read the Word? Because I want God. (laughs) What do I want to do with this more time that that I long for? I just want God. (laughs) The one thing. It's the cry of the human heart. Throughout this book, Moses in Exodus 33, he has an audience with God and, and the people are driving him mad and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And, and he gets this audience with God and in, his, in the moment he says, God, just show me your glory. That's all I want. Just show me your glory. The one thing. Paul in Philippians, his one thing is the same thing. It's to forget what's behind, to strain towards what is ahead, to press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. His one thing. I want God. I want Jesus. I don't want out of this prison. I don't want... Well, I do. (laughs) I do want my life to be spared. I'd love to go and, and, and enjoy retirement and write more letters to more churches. I'd love not to, to go through a, a horrible death. But the one thing is to press on. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. And Jesus himself and Luke, we were there not long ago in that conversation with Martha at the end of Luke chapter 10, where Martha's a bit vexed because Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, few things are needed or indeed only one. (laughs) One thing. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. David just wants God. (laughs) And he knows that as he gazes on the beauty and the character of God there will be consequences. Way too much of our time and our energy in in the church in general is burnt up doing things. And way too much time just needs to be set aside to gaze. To gaze at the beauty of the Lord privately, corporately, as we sang this morning and as we will sing again 
in three or four hours when I'm done, we are gazing. We're gazing. Aaron and Sarah and Daniel lead us in gazing. The ministry of helping us gaze. Gazing is a long, hard look. It cannot be rushed. This is not a glance, a glimpse, a fleeting look. Modern life knows nothing about gazing. Everything is fast. 30-second clips, five-second ads, autoplay, just bang, 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 and and a generation of young people who can't watch anything that's more than about two minutes long. And therefore, they can't just engage with a long, rich plot of a great movie because it's two hours is just too long. (laughs) Gazing is slow. It is deliberate. It is unrushed. And you only gaze at what is beautiful. You only gaze at what is beautiful. We were on holiday recently and we saw some beauty. We saw... um, that we went on Coniston Water. I didn't ask permission, but I thought you wouldn't mind. We went on Coniston Water in a little rowboat and some paddle boards, and we gazed at the beauty of the lake and the mountains. We went to the top of Loch Rig Fell, which is not that hard a walk compared to what some people did, and we gazed at the beauty of Lake Windermere in the background. We went to the top of the main stand at Anfield and we gazed at the beauty of the cop. You only gaze at what you find beautiful. What do you find beautiful? On that level, we've all got different tastes, all different things that we find beautiful. Maybe a film that you just go back to and you keep on watching because it's beautiful. And people say, how can you watch that? You watch it every Christmas. How can you watch it again? It's beautiful. (laughs) Or a song that everyone else hates, but you can just keep on going, (laughs) on repeat, because it's beautiful. It could be a sporting moment, like when Origi scored that goal against Barcelona. It could be many things. It could be the top of a mountain or maybe the top of the mountain is the worst possible place you can imagine. It could be on the water or maybe you're terrified of the water. But all of us, we only gaze at what we find beautiful. And there's so much ugliness. I had written originally there's so much ugliness in the world, but that's an offensive thing to say. There's so much ugliness in culture and in how humanity treats humanity. But there's so much beauty in the world. And gazing is a skill to be practiced your whole life. If we look closely at the tenses in in verse 4, David says initially one thing, I have asked, past tense, this only I will seek, future tense. His life is a life of gazing. A life of gazing. From the past to the future, he's going to gaze. And gazing at beauty is not a waste of time. And we're talking now not about the mountains and the lakes and the cop. We're talking about the beauty of God. 
the Lord, my light and my salvation, the stronghold of my life. Gazing at the beauty of God has consequences. There are outcomes. And I have to acknowledge Tim Keller's influence in, in some of these observations. The first thing, I've got four. The first thing is that gazing at beauty drives out fear. We've seen that already. That when David gazed at the beauty of the Lord, the fear that arose from all of the threats around him was driven away. And the question became, of whom shall I be afraid? Any applicants for the post of the person who is going to cause me to fear? No, (laughs) no applicants. Because God, I've gazed at the beauty of God. Again, Daryl Dash says, It was only when I found something more captivating than my fears. Is that maybe what you need to do? Is that your homework? Go and find something more captivating than the things that cause you to fear. It is only when I found something more captivating than my fears that I was able to let go of my fears and reach for what's better. A phrase that was used a couple of times on this course that I've been doing uh, from a guy called Stephen Charnock is the expulsive power of a new affection. Expulsive. To expel something, to drive it out. And if we get a better affection, a more beautiful thing to look upon, it will drive out those other things. That are, that are craving our attention, the expulsive power of a new affection. So gazing at beauty drives out fear. The second thing, gazing at beauty dethrones self. Nobody sits at the top of a mountain and says, boy, I'm really awesome. <laughs> I'm really special. I'm, I'm class. I'm really, I'm really good. Nobody does that. When you sit at the top of a mountain or in a boat on a lake or at the top of the main stand looking at the cop or wherever it is or listening to your favorite song or whenever you see beauty, you, you be, you're, you're, you're decentered. The world isn't revolving around you anymore. You think of those places you've been on your holidays, on your trips, on your walks and whatever. Those places you've been that you've just stopped and you've gazed. What did you think about? Probably nothing. Because you were gazing. You were just drinking it in. You climb up a mountain, it takes you a couple hours to get there and... You get to the top and you stop. And you don't just stop for a rest. And you don't just stop for something to eat or something to drink. You stop to gaze. And you just drink it in. And ten minutes go by and you don't think about anything. You're just gazing at the beauty. And you're not thinking about yourself. And you're not thinking about your problems. You're not thinking about how awesome you are. You're just drinking in the beauty. Gazing at beauty stops the world from revolving around me. The third thing is that gazing at beauty provokes praise. Like, the great example of this isn't that far away. It's this big old stone at Tullymore. Where you have, you've walked around Tullymore and you get back down to the, to the river and you can hear the shouts of the children from up in the car park. And you see this, this big stone, this big rock that just sits there that says, Stop. Look around 
and praise the name of him who made it all. That is the the outcome of gazing at beauty. Praise rises within you. You've got to give thanks. (laughs) You've got to give thanks. And David talks about, as he's gazed at beauty in verse 6, he says, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. My gazing at beauty causes praise to bubble up within me. I can't contain it. I can't contain it. So maybe when you're at the top of the mountain or in the boat on the lake or on the cruise or wherever you were, you just find yourself saying, thank you, Jesus. Rick Watts has taught me that whenever I lift the cup of coffee to my mouth and the smell of the coffee enters my nose, I instinctively say, thank you, Jesus. And that's not just my addiction. That is is just developing a life that gives thanks and praise for every encounter with beauty, no matter how small it may seem. Thank you, Jesus. I feel sorry for those who are surrounded by beauty and have no one to thank. It must be horrendous to sit at the top of a mountain and take it all in and have no one to thank for it because you're an atheist and nobody made it. (laughs) And there's no one to acknowledge and there's no one to praise. We need more big stones around the place to remind people who to thank. And the fourth thing, the final thing, is that gazing at beauty creates community. And this was a a sort of a new thought to me, but it's a very simple thought. What do you do when you see something beautiful? You know, there's two things. You're, You're there and you want to give thanks for it, but you also want to tell somebody. You want to show somebody. You want to take a photograph and you're not taking the photograph to flex and look at me, look at where I am. You're taking the photograph because what you see is so good you want others to see it. We drove, you know, lots of wee twisty roads through the Lake District last week and sort of the repeated refrain from the driver's seat and the passenger seat was, Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that. Oh, look at that. And I'm like, I can't. I'm driving. <laughs> you know, look at that. Look at that waterfall. Look at, look, look at that mountain. Look. Everything was beautiful. And our instinct is whenever we see something beautiful and we gaze at it, we then create community by telling others, by sharing it. And I think in Psalm 27, verse 6, when David says, I'll sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. I'm speculating here, but I don't think it was a solo acoustic performance. I think he was in community. And all his psalms are written for community and for the people to sing. Beauty creates a community of praise. The better that we get at gazing at the beauty of the Lord, the more we will strengthen our community. We will have this thing in common. You go to a concert and you've never met the other 70 or 80,000 people who, were there, who are there, but it's just like, we're all brothers and sisters tonight for three hours because we all listen to the same stuff. <laughs> Beauty creates community. You unite around whatever it is. And because gazing at beauty dispels fear and because it dethrones self and it provokes praise and it creates community, Satan says, Don't look. (laughs) 
Don't look. Don't gaze. Don't even glance. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And you know what? Maybe done a, a reasonable job of blinding the eyes of some believers as well. Who have stopped gazing. Stopped gazing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Is it any wonder Jesus heals so many blind people? He heals lots of things. And there are little summaries in the Gospels where it just says Jesus healed everyone who came to him. But the Gospel writers, for some reason, again and again, major on the fact that he healed the blind. Jesus came so that we could gaze. It was never healed in the Old Testament. Lots of the things that Jesus healed were also healed in the Old Testament. Lepers were healed. Even the dead were raised. But blindness was never healed until Jesus came on the scene. Jesus came so that we could gaze. In conclusion, we have a problem. And the problem is, in, is back in the middle of the psalm in verses 4 to 6. Look at all the, the language that, that David uses. He talks about dwelling in the house, seeking him in his temple, being safe in his dwelling, the shelter of his tabernacle, and at his tabernacle I will sacrifice. To gaze upon the beauty of God, you have to go to the temple. You have to go to the tabernacle. That's a problem. It's not on Google Maps. We don't know how to get there. Where even is it? And if we can't get to the temple, I guess we're not going to be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Because back in, in verse 4, I've asked from the Lord, this only I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Our problem is that we don't have a temple. We don't have a tabernacle to go to. But there's been someone else hanging around in the background of the psalm, as he often does. <laughs> because it's all about him. In verse 1, light and salvation, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And Jesus' very name, as he's introduced in Matthew, his name is that he's, he's given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will bring salvation. Uh, what about this one? Love this. This was new to me. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. <laughs> Verse 2, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Just think. John 18, as the enemies approach Jesus and Jesus says, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. He's in the background of the psalm. He's there. 
In verse 12, we read about false witnesses rising up against David. Many testified falsely against Jesus, but their statements did not agree in Mark 14. Jesus is in this psalm. And you know what? Jesus is going to solve our tabernacle problem. Because as John says, the one we keep going back to over and over again, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We don't have a tabernacle. Oh, yes, we do. (laughs) Jesus is the place where we go to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. All the other beautiful things that we've talked about are just a, a dim reflection of the beauty of the Lord who made it all. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is where we go to gaze at the beauty of God. And isn't it ironic, in in Isaiah 52 and 53, we read that his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him that he became ugly. The one who is more more beautiful than diamonds. (laughs) He became ugly. He became marred on that cross so that he could heal our blindness and that we could once again gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And this is a matter of the heart. In Psalm 27, verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. This is not about just your mind, your your head knowledge. This is an experience of the heart, not the head. This is not about doctrine. This is about devotion. This is not about theology, which has its place. This is about doxology, which is where praise rises up within us this and this is a an illustration from jonathan edwards just in case i get in trouble for it later this is not just knowing that the honey is sweet this is tasting it my heart not my head my heart says of you seek his face Spurgeon said, Neither prayer nor praise nor the hearing of the word will be profitable to persons who have left their hearts behind them. Bring your heart to church, not just your head. Bring your heart to your devotions and the word of God, not just your head. All of this can only be done through Jesus. All of this gazing, he says in John 14, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Do you know Jesus? Do you gaze in the Gospels? God's audible voice is only heard once in the Gospel of Luke in a way that is understood by those who are around. And what he says is, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. Do you know the character of God or are you just here because you want to go to heaven when you die? That's not the gospel. And that's not enough. It is not enough 
for Moses. It's not enough for Paul. It's not enough for David. And it's not enough for me. If I can get to heaven when I die without knowing him and gazing at his beauty in between, I don't want it. (laughs) I want to know him. That's what Paul said. I want to know him. Eternal life is knowing him. It is not just some sort of eternal life insurance policy. Knowing him. I want to know the bridegroom. Have you ever been at a wedding and you just know that there's a hundred people on the guest list and you're number 100? <laughs> and you're sort of floating around all day thinking, I don't know anyone. No one knows me. At some stage, you have a shifty glance at the bride and groom and you feel like they're looking at you saying, who is that? <laughs> Why are we paying for him to get a meal? I don't want to be like that in the, in, in the kingdom, the eternal, glorious, new Jerusalem. I don't want to be just a fringe guest. I want to be right up there with the bridegroom, close and knowing him. In Hebrew, there is no word for presence. In Hebrew, the word that is used whenever your Bible says about the presence of God, it always is the word face, the face of God. I will seek his face. And what God says or what what Paul writes In 2 Corinthians 4, after that verse about Satan wanting to blind our eyes, we read that God who made, or who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Gazing at the beauty of the face of Christ. And the psalm ends that declaration of confidence the desire to gaze and there's a declaration of confidence i will see i'm going to see it i'm going to see the goodness the character the beauty of god in the land of the living and then that great challenge that great call to wait and as the whole story wraps up in revelation 22 that's where it wraps up it's not that they all get to heaven they all get to walk the streets of gold. They all get a mansion in glory. If that's where your eyes are fixed, you need to rethink a few things. What, where it all ends is they will see his face. That longing, that gazing becomes seen clearly. Father, I ask that you would put within all of our hearts, a fresh desire to gaze. 